This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 25, and i uh, been on a little road trip the last couple weeks with good friend Glenn Rogers. Glenn, welcome to the uh, Kick Aspirational Podcast. Thank you, Dave. Honored to be here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll see about that. Yeah, it's, it's too early to tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Glenn and I, uh, met just by way of introduction, um, Glenn and his wife, uh, Iris, they live in Laguna Beach. They're good friends of Sarah and mine. In fact, they're kind of foster, uh, I don't know, uh, when, when I'm traveling all the time, they're like foster family for Sarah. I was going to say foster parents, but that's not fair to the Glenn and Iris. <laughs> they're not quite old enough for <laughs> that. Right. Close, <laughs> But Glenn's a little older than me and uh, wiser, some would say. And, uh, and Glenn, you were on our, when we owned Excess, uh, you were on our board for quite some time for a number of years. It was, yeah, it was an interesting period. Yeah. Uh, in the, a good outcome, I'm happy to say. Yeah, towards the end of our uh, of our excess uh, ownership before Amway acquired us, you helped us with the negotiation there. Um, but uh, I think the, um, you know, what I wanted to talk about today was in, in the Kick Aspirational podcast was kind of how people break through barriers in their life, and you've had a number of them, and... Uh, you know, we're actually in a hotel suite, and we've got somebody coming in. Sarah, could you help uh, help this guy? So, uh, anyway, so we got a we got some some beverages coming in right now. If you hear something in the background, yeah, it's always good to to. Uh, these aren't festive beverages, unfortunately. This is this is caffeine. Pre pre festive. This is your this is your late morning uh, caffeination program happening. But, um, but Glenn, you know, on the Kick Aspirational podcast, we like to talk about breaking through barriers. And I wanted to kind of focus on a few different areas with you. One, kind of your business life. Two, um, some of the adventures you've had. Uh, you've, you've, uh, you've had a rich business life. You've, you've sailed over some big bodies of water. And uh, most recently, some of your personal physical uh, challenges, they transplants and whatnot. They've tried to kill me a couple of times lately, Dave. <laughs> yeah. So far... So good. Yeah. <laughs> well, in fact, we were um, we were on a uh, on a boat trip, I think, when uh, when one of these things happened. But we'll 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 get to that. Tell me a little bit about um, your your business career. We were on a phone call the other day, and you um, you walked through your your kind of your your background in a few short strokes. Um, where did you start? I mean, you were you were born where? Toronto, Toronto, Canada, and. Uh... You know, I was a long-time publisher. My grandfather owned a magazine, and uh, and he was a pretty famous guy in Canada. He started a club called the Kinsman Club, which uh, ended up being one of the largest service clubs in Canada. And um, uh, so I, I, I got a sense of publishing from him. Okay. And, uh, and so I started very early uh, working for a, a large publication up there, um, which was the... Uh, <laughs> have a little chaos going on in the background. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot going on here. That's right. Not, not exactly sure what's going on. I think we're fine. Thanks, honey. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, anyway, so uh, I, I had a sense of publishing early on, and uh, was fortunate enough to get hired uh, by what was then the largest group of magazines in Canada, which were uh, the ones that used to come in your newspaper. They're now a shadow of their former selves. It's like parade down here. Uh, in the U.S., but as people know, it's gotten a lot skinnier and, and a lot less successful. But at one point, they were very popular and very successful. How old were you when you started in publishing in Canada? Um, I was, I guess, uh, 20. I started fairly early because I had moved to New York when I was 17 on my own. 
and uh, worked for a company based out of California, actually. Who is that? It was a company uh, that called Infonics that uh, made, it's kind of quaint to think of about it now, but they manufactured high-speed tape duplicators, cassette oh, wow. duplicators. Okay. And So you'd have like one master and then you'd run thousands? Thousands or... of copies. And back in the day, that was sort of a popular way for people to communicate. And so um, you would, if, a lot of uh, ministries used it. And so they... Um, so you're in the church business. Uh, <laughs> not really. Is that because but, uh, you're deep we, religious? We just uh, them, yeah. And, um, and so uh, also a lot, of, a lot of companies, period, were uh, using cassettes in those days to communicate. This is sort of pre-cell phone, pre-everything, sure. right? Our, our business, the, you know, in the Amway business, a lot of the, um, the old days, uh, there were tape programs, and you would record uh, talks people did, and then you duplicate them for training and motivation and things like that. Very popular. Yeah, no, in a weird way, they were early podcasts, right? And and uh, you know, be as if we were recording this and then running off ten thousand cassettes and mailing them out to people. This is obviously a lot more efficient. Distribution's gotten a lot easier, but but that's how I started, and and so I was living in New York uh, at seventeen by myself, and. Uh, uh, eventually then uh, was offered to come out and work for the head office in California. So I packed up my car and uh, my motorcycle and drove across the country. And, uh, so what So what year were you living in New York? What years? Oh, at, at the beginning. Yeah, I'm never really good with, uh, with years, but it was a while ago. And that's actually, I moved, uh, I'm not even sure you know this, but I moved to Laguna Beach uh, from New York. And I was living up at uh, Top of the World uh, then with... Uh, with the family of the guy who ran the business, and uh, Roger Nicholson, and so. Um, and, and do you remember roughly when that was? Yeah, I, I'd like to tell you. Uh, it was, was it in the '60s, '70s, yeah, '80s. Well, it was 40 years ago at least. Okay. Right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it was about 40 years ago. How old are you now, Glenn? Uh, I'm glad you asked, Dave. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 67 years young, Dave. There you go. He's a young Not man. Not 69 as you've been trying to sell online. Right? Yeah, well, 69 has a, has a ring to it, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> I figure why why turn 69 once when you can do it three <laughs> or four times? times. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we we'll celebrate that every year. So yeah. you so you so you you were out and starting in New York. You were selling. Tape duplication machines? Yeah, tape you know, so I'd go with my account, accounts where people like Pan American Airlines and people like that who are no longer with us. Uh, and I had a, an office in the top of the Sixes building, uh, which is now owned by uh, uh, by the uh, Kuchner family. And, um, and uh, <laughs> I'll leave the politics out of it. But in any case, um, I was in an ad agency there. It was a lot of fun. And, uh, and then... Uh, then headed out to California to do the same thing, and uh, for probably about another year or two, and then I frankly got homesick. At that point, I'm still only 19 years old, and uh, my father had started a business, and uh, and so uh, he asked me to come back and and work with him in the startup, which is you know what I did. And what was his? What was your? So I mean, just backtracking a second here. So were these promotions as you're moving around the country and doing this work, or is it more kind of lateral moves? I would say at that point it's lateral because yeah. I was really just moving. With these were small startup companies basically, and so uh, you know the the one I was working with in California, there was me and the owner essentially running this business. Okay. And, uh, and then when I went back to work with my father, there was literally four of us. So you were getting some great hands-on experience. Yeah, and it was great. And um, 
we were selling at that point educational equipment, uh, you know, programs, uh, high-speed reading programs to universities, and that was a thing back in the day. There would be language labs. Right. Oh, yeah, you'd sit there with the headphones on, and, and you'd kind of talk to the tape machine, right? Exactly. And there were expensive installations even back then. There would be a quarter of a million dollars or something like that. Now, yeah. They seem to have gone completely out of fashion, but back in the day, they were a thing. Yeah. So it would get people talking, speaking the language. And yeah. So you're, you're 19 years old. Did you, did you go to university? Mm-hmm. I did all my university at night. Um, graduated with a degree in psychology, and it's a good thing I did because... When I applied to get my green card, I would never have gotten down here without a degree at that point. And when did you apply to get your green card? I, I, you're talking probably the only person on the planet who's ever had two. Um, so, uh, <laughs> did you lose one? Uh, well, you do lose them if you go home for a while. Oh, okay. And so that's what happened. And, um, and so uh, I had to apply for a second one. How, how hard was it to get a green card back in the, let's say, the 60s or 70s? 100% easier than it is now. I mean, it still took time and the second one in fact took uh i ended up becoming a citizen but that took from beginning to end like six years and a lot of money yeah and at that point i was running a big company too and it still took a lot of time yeah but at least it was possible you knew it was going to eventually get done yeah it just it's a matter of time and money and, and effort yeah and um so you so you you basically moved to new york at about 17 or so yep you're living um I know a little bit of this story. You're living in a in an apartment filled with stewardesses. Is this right? <laughs> Wasn't a terrible thing for a 17 year old, <laughs> or maybe even you know older. Um, yeah, it was called a stew barn, and uh, it was in the Upper East Side, 81st in New York. And uh, actually, it was a combination of a stew barn and a dormitory for uh, girls from Marymount College. Wow, that's a, is that still there? Is that, is uh, it? <laughs> <laughs> you could look it up. I don't know, um, but uh, they were mostly. Uh, uh, ladies from uh, American Airlines, and they were all sort of away from home for the first time too. So you could essentially uh, knock on any uh, apartment door and ask to borrow a cup of sugar, and you were. In and good you might shape. get some sugar. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. And this is uh, the stewardesses were a little different back then. Uh, <laughs> they didn't didn't have the walkers and the surgical stockings, so it was a little. <laughs> a little no, it sounds thing. like a lot of fun. It sounds like uh, it was a good time to be young people in uh, in New York City, and and you're working, you're going to school at night, and then you move out to Laguna Beach for a time, and and. Now let's fast forward. So you, your father starts uh, a company in in Toronto. Toronto, yeah. Th that's where you're from. That's where I'm from. And and what um, was the company started? It was a it was a company that uh, distributed educational equipment, basically. And and it's, he's the one who actually had also been distributing the high speed tape duplicators in Canada. Okay. And he had uh, one of the first uh, non Bell telephone companies in Canada. Oh, wow. And so we would, we'd be installing uh, telephone systems. You know, there was a law passed that opened it up and sort of started to break up the Bell right. monopoly. Bell monopoly. I think that happened in the U.S. too. Yep. So he's one of the first guys to really take advantage of that. And what, what was your dad's background? Um, he he was a business guy. You know, he, he uh, basically had always either, um, I mean, he started his own company. He started working for a company called Moore Business Forms, which was a, very large company at the time. I think it's probably out of business now. But and then he went and uh, he and his father started this uh, company that distributed uh, this telephone equipment based in the UK. And so it came to be, you know, they had a hundred people. It became a pretty decent sized business. And, and uh, so, so you and he kind of kicked that off. And so you're out selling basically. Yeah, out selling. 
And how did you how did you find success with sales back then? Were you dialing for dollars? Were you just showing up in people's doorsteps? What were you doing? Well, in, in those days, it was you you were especially working with the educational departments. You actually had to go to the school boards and work through that whole process. And same with the universities. So it was a fairly complex selling environment because it wasn't like several people had to weigh in on the decision. I think it's probably the same now. There, right. so there's a long sort of sales process that goes through. I used, I used to do similar stuff. I worked uh, when I was working in network computers. Um, one of our big clients was the Clovis Unified School System in California, which yeah. is one of the larger and wealthier ones in the Central Valley. And uh, they were one that everybody wanted to get into because they had a lot of dough. And, um, you know, they had fewer kids per per dollar that they'd spend. And so they'd put these elaborate computer labs in and networks in. But um, those are the guys you wanted. Yeah. Those are the, the that's where the money <laughs> that's right. is. Yeah. That's where the money was. So um, I did that for a while. And then my father actually decided to buy a sailboat and retire and, and move to the Caribbean on a boat. And so I figured, what am I going to do now? And uh, so I applied and got a publishing job at a company called McLean Hunter, which is a large publishing company in Canada at the time. Again, shout out to his former self now. And um, worked for the equivalent of that age. And okay. uh, one of my clients was this large magazine company, and the guy who ran that liked me, hired me, and I was off off to the races in publishing. And I was promoted very early and fast, and so I ended up, you know, at a very young age, having a sales group, and and uh, and so I was fortunate to pick the right industry for me at the right time. And publishing at that time, I mean, when you say that you're in publishing, that what, what was your actual work? Were you leading like ad sales or were you driving, uh, overseeing the entire publication? What was the what Eventually was the work I, I rose up to oversee the entire publication. In those days I was running a sales team. Okay. And, uh, and so then the next step usually from that is to vice president and executive vice president and CEO. And so I went through all those processes Ended up running groups of magazines um, all through the country and then ultimately moved on to the U.S. to run a large group there, and too. What was the secret to that fast growth, to ro- rocketing through these organizations at you know, a fairly young age um, with, uh, you know, with, with, with the background that you had? I think charm and, and good looks, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Um, you know, I think it's like any other in- industry. If, if you're able to um, convince the people you work for that you have a clue about what you're doing, I think if you have a sense of humor and, and a good work ethic, people figure that out pretty quickly. And then obviously if you're successful, you know, if, if you make things happen. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, especially in the beginning, you have to sell stuff. Right. And, and I was actually good at selling stuff. And so... So you're saying something crazy like revenue drives a business? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, just, it fixes almost everything, you know, um, yeah. and uh, without it, you really have problems. So I was just good at generating revenue and and instilling trust, I guess, with the guys who would actually make the decisions on my career. So would you say it was a combination of driving revenue and then having an you know having a theory or having a philosophy of what you were trying to accomplish, a strategy that, uh, that people could follow and, and agree with? Yeah, and I'm, I'm not even sure it was that philosophic you know I mean yeah. I, I think I I really I wanted to be successful I wanted to um, you know earn a good living and so you know it didn't take much to figure out the way to do that was make sales and, and impress the people you're working for um, and those those original guys um, are still close friends you know 40 years later and so I was able to kind of build relationships and I think 
that's what this podcast is largely about. I mean, at, at the end of the day, you have people to build long-term relationships that will help both sides. But if, if you aren't able to do that, it's going to be very hard for you to succeed. Who are some of those people and what have, what have they done? Well, um, Gordon Pape is one of the first guys who hired me and he still runs a, a group of financial newsletters in Canada. He's sort of a financial guru in Canada. And I am still writing a column for him every month, 40 years later. On, on what? On stock picking, basically. Is that Seeking Alpha? Uh, no, I will post the Seeking Alpha after it goes out. His are paid sites, whereas okay. Seeking Alpha is. And you know. What's the name of his publication that it goes um, to? He's got uh, Investor Daily, uh, Building Wealth in the Net. He's got a sort of a group of okay. you know, five or six of them. So you write it for him, and then it goes to Seeking Alpha after that as a. As a if I remember to post it, it's really for his. You know, got he, it. He's got a paid group, and so yeah, yeah. he doesn't want me posting that until his people have seen it. Sure, sure. So if I remember it, I'll stick it on, on Seeking Alpha. Uh, Alpha. Seeking Alpha. Yeah. And um, you ended up, uh, who, are, who are a couple of other people that, that you've stayed in touch with through that period? Pretty much that whole group. Uh, Jeff Shear, who is um, still a good friend of mine, he, he was the uh, the boss of a whole group of magazines, similar to Western, we had Western Living, Vancouver Magazine, Calgary Magazine, all these city magazines. <laughs> which are similar to like Sunset Magazine in the U.S. or Chicago Magazine. So we had all those. And, um, and, he, and I, I just saw him this summer, you know. Um, so that's, you know, 35 years of, of relationship. And you know, he was my boss then. He actually ended up moving me to Vancouver or ran a group of magazines out of, out of uh, Vancouver uh, for a long time. So, yeah, I mean, I, all those, those people... Um, I'm still in touch with Roger Nicholson, the guy I went to work for when I was 17. Wow. Yeah, so I just think you, I've always been a person who tried to cultivate those and keep those relationships going, even when there's no real reason to do it other than history, but... Or maybe it's just an authentic relationship, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just because you want to. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then um, you ended up owning a, um, a magazine or a series of magazines, is that right? No, and I never really did, and, and uh, as it turns out, I'm glad I didn't, the way the business has gone, but um, I ended up just working in a senior capacity, you know, for big magazine companies, and eventually the, the best job I had was running uh, Daily Variety, which is a pretty famous publication. And, yeah, for the entertainment industry. And we had uh, 26 other magazines in that group, so I probably had 3,000 people working for me in that group. Um, and uh, offices all over the world and did a lot of mergers and acquisitions in those days too. Is, is so, that how you started working with David Black? No, that was uh, before. He has a group of 200 newspapers. Okay. And I was president of one of his divisions. And he and I are still close and that's sort of... You were just sailing with him in Vancouver this year. He's one of the largest right. publishers in Canada, is that that's right? That's right. And so uh, he and I have been friends now for 25 years. That's 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 yeah. fascinating work. Um, what what are what's like if you know what's the hardest thing that that you had to go through when you were when you were in this publishing work? You know, working with a lot of different people, working with a lot of different publications. What were some of the harder things you had to go through that um, you know maybe you'd still have to go through, but you may or may may, may not have done differently. Well, I, I think for me, and and I think you probably share some of this. Um, is working in these big organizations can be very frustrating. I was always very good at reporting up and down. I was very bad at reporting sideways. And um, I don't have a lot of um, patience for for fools, I guess, uh, which would be unfair to the fools. But, um, you know, I think from my point of view, 
living within a a corporate culture that you don't completely control, where you have to play nice with other people, um, that was just always a challenge. And sometimes I did better than other times, but I think, you know, I was probably way too impatient and way too dismissive with my coworkers, you know, people on my same level than I probably should have been. And that's like, a, yeah, I'd suffer from that too. I mean, I think when you've actually owned your own things or been able to run pretty fast without being tethered to other people, it's, it's hard sometimes to have empathy for, for maybe people who've been in a corporate culture where compliance and agreement is, is a primary value. And, uh, and like you, I've, I've struggled with that too. Um, it's a challenge, you know, and, and it, it, we're then challenging to work with for people too. I mean, it, you know, right. at the same time, uh, there are wolves and sheep and, and sometimes you have to be a wolf, if, you know. And so I, I would rather kind of had forced my will uh, in some situations than sort of laid back and had it forced on me, you know. Um, yeah. But that's just kind of how much aggravation you're willing to take on and, and, and how certain you are of your position too. I mean, you know, you flat out could be wrong too. So. Sure. No, I mean, that's part of the, part of the fun of working in big groups is you find out uh, that you're not right all the time. Right. <laughs> people are, people are anxious to remind you too. So I mean, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of hubris that comes can, with that. Yeah, yeah. So. so, um, so how did you end up, um, uh, Taking time off and, and sailing with, with these big corporate jobs, how'd you end up with enough time to go sailing? Well, one of the other challenges is that, you know, uh, these big corporations tend to switch out management a lot, and um, sometimes you get along with them, sometimes you don't. So finally, um, I, you know, a CEO was put in place that I just could not get along with. And so um, I then left, bought a sailboat, took the family sailing for a year, which had been something I'd wanted to do my whole life. I don't even know why, but... I grew up on a marina. We owned a marina, and you know we had boats all over the place, so I was sort of used to it. So uh, we picked up the boat in La Rochelle, France, and sailed into the Med, and uh, ultimately across the Atlantic. And uh, so, who's up. we? So uh, basically, Iris, who had really never sailed before. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I'm not even sure I'd been on a boat before. Uh, so this God, is your wife. This is my wife. God bless. How her did you for meet her. Iris? Yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty big ask, and. Uh, and so she, and then we had our three kids who were um, twins who were, I guess at that point, six. And Gina was nine. Iris will kill me. I probably got the names wrong, but they were sub 10 years old for sure. That I know. So and, you got uh, Gina, Kate, and Jake. Kate and Jake are twins. They were twins, and then Gina's They were roughly ago. six and eight or six or nine at the time. Somewhere in that area. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so off we went. And uh, Iris had been a teacher. Um, uh, we had met at the magazines, but she ultimately became a teacher. So she kind of homeschooled them for a year. And, uh, and so we had some pretty crazy adventures out there. I'm not, if I'd known how hard it was going to be, I'm not sure I would have taken the kids or done it twice, but, um, but overall it was a fantastic experience. We were gone for almost exactly a year to the day. And, um, you know, uh, where did they, you sail? So we sailed, um, Bay of Biscay, round, you know, uh, Gibraltar, into the Med to Barcelona. So you sailed basically down the coast of France and parts of Spain and Portugal and then into into the Med? That whole group. If I had to do over again, maybe I would have skipped a part of that. But but we ended up uh, in Barcelona, and then we got off the boat for a while and rented a house in, in France and fooled around there for a few weeks. Then um, they got off the boat. Um, they being the kids and we had people coming and going, you know, my brother came and went some people who actually knew what they were doing sailing wise too. That helped. And 
but for the Atlantic crossing, um, we sent uh, Iris and the kids back to Vancouver, Victoria, actually, uh, just because you, you didn't know whether it was going to be dangerous or not. As it turned out, it was dangerous for a while. Um, south of Gibraltar, we ran into a gigantic storm and, you know, huge waves and, you know, lightning strikes and all kinds of crazy stuff. The, uh, the radar screen looked like something out of a World War II movie. It was so, <laughs> it was like purple. Big you know? purple blob. Yeah, big purple blob. So, um, and some of the crew were getting pretty anxious at that point, but, um, so, and how big was your catamaran? It was uh, 46 feet. How much sailing had you done before you bought the catamaran? I had done a lot of sailing and a lot of racing, but I had not done any really long, deep blue water sailing. Yeah. Know? So big crossings, big crossings like that. Yeah. It turned out that was actually, I won't say the easiest part of the trip, but you know, once the storm was over, we were basically becalmed for a long time and we were running out of food and fuel. Um, and you know, we were worried if we lost the fuel, then of course you lose the nav and who knows where you're going to end up. So I saw a little blip on the radar screen at five in the morning, you know, about halfway through the crossing and it was a Greek freighter. Yeah. And so I radioed them and, and they were kind enough to, and it takes them a long time just to stop. Yeah. And so it took us about 24 hours to actually rendezvous and, uh, and they hooked up these lines to the boat, which kept breaking like elastic bands because they'd go up and my boat would go down and it was just snapping, snapping, snapping. So finally I figured out I had to drive the boat up the waves, keeping in, in concert with the big freighter and then throttle back and just push it up and down while they were lowering big, uh, you know, canisters of diesel and food and stuff. Wow. Inside. And had one of those canisters gone wrong, it would have gone right through the hull, and that would have been the end of all that. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> wouldn't have had to worry about anything much after that. So super kind of them to do it, and um, that gave us enough fuel to actually get home, and we ended up uh, meeting Iris and the kids in Martinique. Okay, in, in, the, in the Caribbean. Yeah. Wow. So you, so you made it, but with we the help it. of a Greek uh, <laughs> tanker. Greek tanker in the middle of the ocean, yeah. Wow. I mean, it's weird out there because you would think you would see people but you don't i mean there's really nothing it's out a, there it's a big space and <laughs> yeah. not a lot of people in that's it. right i mean unless you happen to be in one of the shipping lanes you know you can go for days without seeing anybody have you had at that point had you had any near-death experiences on boats or out in other adventures i know you've been a skier and in, in the mountains quite a bit yeah we, we you know have a few brushes with death not not as bad as the ones we're likely to talk about soon but um, we had a cottage up on a lake north in northern Ontario on Lake Simcoe, and there was a river that ran down our property. We owned a marina there. We had uh, 24 acres. And so in the spring, um, you could sort of see the ice breaking up on the harbor, and this, this river would be, you know, swollen and pouring down uh, into the harbor. So my friend and I thought it would be a genius idea to, you know, put on heavy clothes and, and take a canoe down there. <laughs> well, as it turns out, that wasn't such a smart idea. So, of course, the canoe then swamps because uh, these were like real rapids. And so we're now clinging to this canoe and... Uh, freezing cold water. Freezing cold water. And we get to the point where the, the ice is still there. The canoe is immediately sucked under the ice, like gone. And so now we're hanging onto these logs that were sort of piled up on the ice. Meanwhile, my grandfather's at the, on the porch across the way freaking out. And so somehow my friend was able to crawl out on the ice and extend a, a branch to me. 
and uh, somehow dragged me back out on the ice. I have no idea how, how we did it because, you know, at that point I'm half under the ice and half yeah. hanging onto this log. And the river's trying to suck you under the oh, ice. Oh, yeah. And we didn't find the canoe for three months after that. I mean, it, it, yeah. it was gone. So that was pretty nip and tuck. But since then, you know, there's been the odd scrape, but, but nothing nothing that close, you know, where you're thinking, yeah, maybe this is not going to work out. So on the boat, you never felt like you were, you were going to die necessarily, even though you were out in pretty big waves. I'm pretty calm on the, on the, on the water for some reason, whatever reason, I don't, I don't get too panicky, but that one storm off Gibraltar, I mean, that was substantial. It's pretty heavy. How, how big were the waves on that storm? Well, it's hard to measure, but I can tell you that at some time you, you'd go down and your mast was kind of level with the next one coming up. I mean, so they're pretty freaking big. So I mean, 50 or 60 foot yeah. uh, waves when they're out in the open ocean. When they're open, waves. you can sort of roll down them. Yeah. But it was more... Were they cresting or were they staying pretty... They were just staying rollers, thank yeah. God. Yeah. So yeah. If cresting, you would have been in a lot of trouble. Yeah. But it was also just, you know, stormy and driving rain and all this kind of stuff. So you couldn't really see where you're going much. So you just had to trust in the nav and hope everything held together, which it did. And hope you didn't come into a tanker on the other side of one of those waves. For example. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, my, my brother and I used to windsurf on Lake Michigan in big storms. And the, uh, you know, we'd have a smaller mass, of course, but we, we'd have it where you lose sight of each other in the in the troughs. And, um, yeah, we used to break a lot of equipment out in those, those kind of conditions. And that ultimately, um, I got tired of paddling yeah. for miles after <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you break exactly. a universal or a mast or something. Yeah, no, we were fortunate the boat held together pretty well. I mean... The only time it kind of fell apart is we were coming from Puerto Rico up towards uh, up towards Florida, and we got another huge storm there. Fortunately, my brother was on the on the boat at that time, but one of the you know one of the pins that was holding the the, the sail together you know kind of let go, so somehow we had to get a spare part, and you had to have really small hands. So he's holding up my daughter Gina, who's got this little pin that she's trying to put in this slot in the mast and uh or in the boom and uh that was a moment too i mean it was just wild out there finally got it done and carried on and then um we all went to sleep and then i hear the the nav going crazy beep 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 and my brother had fallen asleep on watch and the boat was sort of careening into the shore oh geez so I, I, you know, fortunately I had heard, I leapt, leapt up and, and we were able to avoid certain doom. But that, that stuff on that trip would happen on a regular basis. Yeah. Especially during the anchoring. It's, when you're out there, you're, you're pretty good. It's, it's docking, anchoring, all that. Those are the times when stuff usually goes wrong. Yeah, if you're, I mean, if you're at anchor, you, you have to anchor into the wind and usually put out two anchors, right, at kind of 45 degree angles. And then occasionally you'll have wind switches and then you'll be dragging anchor across some harbor or bay or wherever you are, right? We had a couple of those. And yeah. Matter of fact, one we we heard this pounding on the hull, and I thought, what the hell? And so I I get up and there's this person in a you know in a dinghy going, you know, we've been drifting out to sea for the last couple of hours, and I went, oh my god. So they yeah been kind enough to see it, but that that stuff would just happen. The tide would come up and you hadn't put out enough chain, you know, whatever the case. A lot of different a lot of different things that stuff happen. Stuff happens. What's um? I mean, we've been on a couple trips. We've been we've gone sailing in Tahiti together. Um, we rented some sixty-five foot catamarans. That was fun. That was a good one. We had yeah. one one rough crossing, not too bad. Not too bad, yeah. Um, and uh, that one was just a lot of fun because we were going to all these like we were going Huahini, Raiatea, Taha, Bora Bora, all these great little islands that just have beautiful water and. Uh, 
Well, the kids were at a great age, too. Yeah. How old were our kids then? Kind of middle school, high schoolish. Middle school. And, and uh, you know, because they were able to surf everywhere and scuba dive and, you know, uh, snorkel. Well, that was pretty fun. That was your first time scuba diving, yeah, right? Yeah, it was. And, uh, and Skylar and I had done a night dive the night before in Bora Bora. And I realized they had uh, two inter- really interesting dives you could do during the day. There was a shark dive and a manta ray dive. Right. And I thought, well, people are kind of nervous usually about sharks. So I thought, let's let's see if we can get our whole... How many people do we have? We have four it? families, right? Four families, yeah. And um, So about so, 20 people, roughly? Yeah, about 20 people. And the French are hilarious because I, mean, I had never even had a snorkel tank on. And they on the way out to the dive, they had this little flip chart... Yeah, so we, so we, their jatans. So, we, so we went to the beach <laughs> yeah. in our dinghies and jumped in their dive boat. And from their beach to the dive site, they basically go through a flip chart with you right. explaining how to scuba dive, and right? by the way, this was like a super, like, you know, your kid had drawn it. So no one's even hardly paying attention. Then they snap the gear on you and throw you overboard. And, and next thing I know, you know, there are sharks, that, you know, and giant manta rays of I think you said later, but the French even said that it was one of the most incredible dive moments that they had even been on. I mean, you were suddenly surrounded by all this wildlife. And so fortunately, one of the dive masters sort of stayed fairly close to me. But it was, uh, I mean, it was a wild experience. I'm not sure anyone else would ever let you go and do that. Yeah. When we tried doing it in Nihiwatu, you know, she's making me try and empty my mask underwater and all that stuff. And didn't really go that well, but... <laughs> but that, that dive in Tahiti was fantastic. You know, we, I don't know whether you know this, but somehow Facebook keeps track of all this stuff. You and I have been to 500 different places together. Wow. 500 different places. And we're, in, we're sitting today in Sardinia. Yeah, that's right. At, uh, at the Hotel Romanzino, built by the Aga Khan in 1965. Pretty it's, cool place. It's not a dump. Yeah. No, it's, it's good. <laughs> waiting for the 52 Super Series to start, the waiting, sailboat waiting, race. Waiting to eat another 30, 30 euro hamburger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not afraid to take your money here. So <laughs> what's the... Um, the we, we went on a sailing trip in Cuba, so this will kind of tie us into some of the health things that you've been through, which I think are some of the, you know, you've, you've been through some real rough spots lately. Um, you had discovered uh, a bladder irregularity that led to, uh, did you have a bladder, uh, you, had, you had bladder surgery from a, for a bladder cancer that was discovered, right? Yeah, the, 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 we discovered that I had uh, bladder cancer, which was not one of the great moments. Uh, no. And... Uh, <laughs> And so, um, little did I know at the time, because my health had been, uh, thankfully, extremely perfect up until that moment. I, you know, literally never even had a hangnail. And I used to go for physicals, and the doctor would just yawn. Um, <laughs> and so, anyway, this was quite a jolt. Um, in fact, when they sent me off for the scans and tests, I expected this to be just a false positive. It turned out it wasn't. And so that led to... Um, and in what stage was did they discover? Uh, unfortunately, pretty late. So it, it was like a three stage, or four stage uh, three, and uh, and then you know rapidly moving to stage four. And so I had an initial operation, and they just uh, the urologist who did it in Orange County just said, "Look, this is above my pay grade," and and uh, sewed me back up again. So then I had to go up to UCLA. They then put me on the chemotherapy for about six months. Uh, which is probably the worst part of the whole deal, frankly. I mean, none of it was great, but that was 
I don't recommend chemotherapy. It's unpleasant. It's not good. And, and what uh, was it because of the you're just you, you can't eat and you feel sick time. all the time. Yeah. 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 And so um, got through that, and then they did this crazy operation with a uh, Da Vinci machine. They call it where basically they take out your bladder, build you a new bladder. Mm -hmm. Uh, out of your intestines. Uh, those of you who are, are having lunch, you might Wait, want to pause at the moment. What's a what's a Da Vinci machine? It's this complicated uh, robot, um, and uh, I guess it was invented in Italy or something, uh, coincidentally. And so the surgeon literally operates this thing, um, you know, like a video game, is staring into a screen. And the idea behind it is that. Um, it's an intricate surgery. Is that why they use very those? integrate sur surgery? And of course, you know, knowing what I now know, I probably would have done it at old school. But shorter time to heal because the puncture wounds are quite small, and um, you know, there's no big incision and so on. Unfortunately, though, something went wrong, and um, although they got rid of the cancer, which was a good thing, uh, but it also damaged my ureters, which, you know, fast forwarding a bit. Um, led to then kidney failure, uh, which was not a good thing. And, uh, and, and then that ended up, you know, uh, putting me on dialysis for a while, which was actually worse than chemotherapy. And then uh, they decided really the only way I was going to live was to get a kidney transplant. And the chances of doing so, by the way, are low. I mean, uh, they're of, like... Of a, getting a transplant. Yeah. It's like a seven or eight year wait. And at my age, frankly, I wouldn't give me one either. I mean, uh, you know, eight years into this thing, I'd rather see a forty-year-old get one than, than. When did uh, you? When did you? When? How long ago did they first detect the the bladder cancer? Four years ago. So this has been about four-year journey of kind of constant snafus around yeah. getting the bladder first having the bladder surgery, then having ureter issues and then having kidney issues and then finally figuring out that you need to be on dialysis and then figuring out you need a transplant and then and ultimately um you did get a transplant yes and and uh i was extremely fortunate that um, you know, my wife iris um was uh, a match and, and how does it work with kidneys is it just a blood type match these days it's blood type it used to be you had a bunch more markers but then now they've figured out how to true it up with um uh, with meds, okay, basically, and so you know, not only were was she a match, but she was willing to do it, uh, which is obviously a huge ask uh, for anybody. And um, so, and, and really, there was no plan B. I mean, if if that transplant hadn't have happened or hadn't have worked, I just wouldn't be here sitting with you in Sardinia. It was pretty dire at that point. So um, yeah, we went up together, and and, and that's uh, because dialysis is really really hard on your body. It's really hard on your body. It really just it barely keeps you alive, and so you can kind of go from treatment to treatment, but effectively your life is largely over. And I know some people ship equipment around the world and all this kind of stuff, but I I just can't imagine it. I could barely walk up the stairs afterwards, so I don't know how people do it, but some people do. But their dialysis centers are a pretty sad place. Yeah. You don't want to be there for very long. And uh, so anyway, off we went to UCLA and after a lot of tests and stuff, and she went in one room, I went in the other, and they took out her kidney and put it in me. And 24 hours later, she was out at dinner in a movie, and six days later, I was out of the hospital. And um, with, I mean, I, I remember this through this this process. It was it was um, we 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 had a number of we'd go on a lot of trips together. The first one, I think, after your kidney surgery, 
How many days after your kidney surgery were we, were we in Cuba? Um, I think that was, no, that was after the bladder cancer. I'm sorry, after the bladder cancer, I after, the, after the bladder surgery. So yeah, I literally got off the table, uh, you know, sort of seven years, seven days or so after, you know, uh, the sort of follow-up surgery, because there was, there was a bunch of several follow-up surgeries in between and was in Cuba. I mean, the doctors thought I was insane. So it was a week after a surgery you had had right. through this process for your bladder. We end up... We're on, we're, and we're going sailing. Yeah. So we're on catamarans in Cuba, on the south end of Cuba. What was the What was that place called? Um, oh boy, Sierra del Fuego, something like something that. Something like that. Yeah. We're We're on these boats, and it was the first night in harbor. And a boat comes up with some guys from the Cayman Islands, and they're all from South Africa and Ireland and 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 whatnot. And they invited us over for some drinks, and uh, which turned into quite a bit of rum. Yeah. And uh, and some and a really kind of incredible story about uh, a couple of the guys who had um, in, sailed through a Cat Five hurricane, almost died a few times. The guys were one of the most compelling um, storytellers I've ever heard. I mean, it was I was lying in my bunk because I was not well enough to come over. And in th- those days, I was self catheterizing. Uh, guys, close your ears out there. And uh, <laughs> but I, I, I could hear him clearly because we were brought, we were birthed right beside him. And uh, he was such a great story. I mean, the, what those guys went through was unbelievable. And so I just I lay there and listened to it through the porthole. But, yeah. yeah, and I remember the next morning because this um, the kind of the, the the lead sailor on this boat uh, who lives in the Cayman Islands was trying to convince us that we could uh, join the, the Cayman Island Olympic team and choose, choose whichever sport we'd like, which sounded pretty good at the time. I was picking ski jumping, I think. Yeah, I think you, you were convinced. Uh, yeah. <laughs> even even Sarah uh, came back convinced. What, I don't know, was she going to do the luge or something? Yeah, like I think that? she and I were going to do the luge because you don't have to, you, in, in, in her mind, you don't have to do very much in a exactly. luge. You just lay there. Just sit in a sleigh and it all works out. Yeah. So, so... <laughs> So we were, we were, um, I was pretty convinced I wasn't doing either of those things. Yeah. Yeah. I've always wanted to do this. I always wanted to do the ski jumping, but the, um, probably have to practice first. I, I wouldn't hurt. (laughs) But the next morning I said, Glenn, how come you didn't, you didn't join us last night? And you said, well, well, Dave, my bladder wasn't draining. And so I had to self catheterize. And I said, on a boat, (laughs) I mean, granted we're in Harbor, but that's like Navy SEAL stuff. Oh yeah. SEAL team six stuff. Yeah. I, it, uh, I don't recommend self-catheterizing to people but it was the only way to kind of try and save the kidneys at that point but yeah yeah so so that was one of our experiences yeah and then uh, last winter you had had uh, you had a stent uh or i'm sorry you you had a hickman valve put in so that you could they could do this um this dialysis yeah more easily without having to find veins and things like this a hickman is a goes into one of your um not into your artery but into one of your veins yeah and um and we were walking down the street. You were, they told you not to ski. Right. We were in Whistler. Yeah. We were up in Whistler. And uh, your, your doctor said, well, you can go to Whistler, but, but don't ski. Because, you know, they're concerned that this Hickman valve could it's possibly come out. Could yeah. come out and you might bleed to death. Um, <laughs> also not recommended. Yeah. We did ski a little bit. You decided that was a bad idea yeah, and took the gondola down, down the yeah. hill. Um, but the next day we were walking to get a smoothie. And uh, I look down in the street and I see a Hickman valve, which I'm familiar with, <laughs> you thought, laying in the street. And I said, Glenn, is that yours? Someone else. <laughs> yeah. right. What are the odds? What are the odds? <laughs> yeah. And we picked it up. And I literally, I, I mean, my first thought was, 
Glenn's going to bleed to death in the street while we're standing here. And, <laughs> and so I said, is your shirt up. wet? Are you And we bleeding? weren't going to get our smoothies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did not get our smoothies. But the, uh, it turns out that probably it had, it had loosened. And, and uh, the veins veins are remarkably good at closing when... when yeah, they, fortunately, it, it, you know, I didn't uh, bleed to death on the street. That was good. And But I did had to get a, you know, chain, cut short the trip and jump on a flight the next day and get it put back in. But, uh, yeah... Let's not do all of that again. But I feel great right now, and, and Iris feels great. And so, uh, you know, transplants are remarkably more, yeah. more rub, uh, runway. So, what's the, what's the, any lessons from all this? Any lessons from the, I mean, do you see the world differently? Do you think differently about life? You kind of, you were kind of staring at the end there for, for a little while, or conceivably at the end. Um, has, has, it, has it made you think differently? Nah, you know, I, I, people have asked me that a lot, you know, uh, but I, I kind of liked my life before, you mm-hmm. know, so for me, I was just more anxious to get back to where I was as opposed to some whole new paradigm. I mean, of course, I'm now grateful for where I am uh, and, and maybe I'm a little more grateful, a little more thoughtful than I was before. You tend to take your health for, for granted until you don't have it. Um, so I, I don't think I had sort of a pro- profound philosophic uh, shift other than to say, I mean, we're both reading this book, Shogun, and they, they talk a lot about the Shinto religion and... and uh, Worshipping your ancestors and, and Zen Buddhism. Yeah, yeah, all that. And that resonates a lot when you kind of remind yourself about how temporal life is and, and being in the moment. All these things philosophers have been telling us all over the our, our whole lives. But it kind of, it has resonated a lot with me just reading this book, having been through everything we've just discussed, because... It it really reminds you that getting too far ahead of yourself or dwelling too far behind is not a good strategy for happiness. Yeah. And, and so being in the moment, uh, I think we all probably strive for it, but it's extremely hard to do. I mean, I, I think through some of our conversations, you've talked to me about anxiety a little bit. Um, I know one of your greatest fears is to be stuck in a trailer having to eat cat food out of a tin. Right. Um <laughs> don't think there's a lot of uh, I think I'm okay now, but there. Um, okay. but there's anxiety that we all suffer from and, and I think like Kierkegaard talks about the fact that you know anxiety is, is this idea that we're looking at the at the past or the future and not really focused on the present has that has it helped you lower your anxiety yeah I, I think so I, I think part of that may be just aging too and and you know obviously if you reach to a point of, of financial security too that helps you, you know, uh, with that. But I, I, I was always, I think, too fear-driven. Yeah. And um, now the good news about, you know, having some element of fear is that it does propel you forward. Right. And so I think the, the question is then, if, if you're going to have some, and we're all going to have some anxiety and some fear, is can you manage it and, and can you adapt to it? And what strategies, you know, can you use to kind of keep yourself sane while you're while you're also moving forward. And so I think, you know, uh, that's all been kind of something that I've tried to manage throughout my life is how much fear is good fear, how much is too much, you know, how do you then control your anxiety, you know, because you're going to be in stressful situations lots and lots through your career if you're actually trying hard. How have you done that? Like, give me a couple examples of how you've managed fear when it's been maybe difficult or more strenuous than you were hoping for and you're kind of freaking out a little bit. You know, one of the things, um, an obvious thing is exercise. So I've always exercised, and I think there's actually a 
you know a, a purpose to that. But is it the endorphin release or what? I think so. I think yeah. there, I think there's you know there's even science behind that. I think. Yeah. But, um, but the, what I would do, and it's kind of a weird strategy, but I would construct the worst possible scenario, and then I you know uh, and then what what would be my absolute fallback position? How bad was it? Right. And, so um, it's a trailer with cat food. Right, exactly. Where do you keep this trailer? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> on the ocean front, you know. Just um, and so I, but I would try and con- construct a. And then once I realized, look, even under those circumstances, I was going to be okay. Right. And and that would, for some reason, release my anxiety quite a bit, knowing that you had. I won't call it a soft place to fall, but it was something that was endurable. Something, and so. And then you'd realize, look, the chances of that happening are pretty remote. And so you could then back up your fear program to the point where you go, what's the likely worst? And once you get to the likely worst, it's probably not that bad. And that would allow me to sort of calm down and keep going. And, and when you're in a situation like, for example, when you're at sea in these big waves and you've, you know, you know you've got to get through this purple blob, um, I'm guessing there you weren't thinking about what's the worst thing that could happen because the worst thing that happened is you sink and you die. Right. Um, in that situation where you you tend to just focus on the moment and the, be present and and how to get through this moment and then the next moment and the next moment. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think at that point um, you try and stay very very calm and then figure out okay, what are the things I can do to enhance the opportunity to actually survive this. And so what are the steps, you know, and then at that point too, hopefully you're drawing on your own experience where, look, I've been sailing a lot. I've been in big waves before, you know, I I can manage this. Yeah. Um, And then I I think at some point um, you have to just give over to the fact that, look, you do everything you possibly can. And then at some point it's either in someone else's hands or it's karma or it's luck, whatever you happen to believe in. But there's a point where there's no sense worrying about it anymore. You just have to do your work and hopefully it, it'll all work out. Yeah, no, I think that's, um, I think it gets back to some of the, the Zen, Zen Buddhist ideas you were talking about yeah. of being, trying to be purely present and, and being aware um, of, of what's happening right now and staying focused on what's happening right now. At one point you had said of the, uh, something about the seven habits of highly effective people. What did you say? The first six are focus, right? <laughs> That's right. I mean, the people who I know have, have been done really well have tended to not been all over the place. They've tended to, you know, pick a path and and stick to it pretty hard. Unless it's not working anymore, then they aren't afraid to pivot, and you know. But you don't see them changing every day, right? And I mean, so I think, I mean, when I came back from sailing and had to then find it something to do. I decided I was never going to work for anyone else again. So I started, you know, working with private equity firms and, and uh, venture capital firms and funding businesses and, and going from there. And I think then I felt uh, it was important to then just get control and, and have it in my own hands to some degree. I mean, you're never completely in control because stuff happens, but... But you could control your pipeline. You could control the opportunities you were working on. I could control who I wanted to work with, right. you know, which is super important. And um, so I, I think all that kind of keeps you hopefully centered and hopefully from not being too splintered and all over the place. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's important. But, you know, you, you know, having said that, you still have to have flexibility in your approach because sometimes it won't work. 
Right. And the thing I've always said to my kids, and and I, I've said two, th- I've said it to you a couple of times too, when we've been talking about this. A uh, geography matters a lot. Um, right. So where you put yourself physically has a huge determination of, uh, I think, of, of your success. I mean, you know, Warren Buffett's made it in in, uh, in Nebraska, but. You know, he's a unicorn. Yeah, there aren't a lot of um, multi-billionaire investors out in Nebraska. <laughs> That's right. And um, and then the other thing uh, I think is it, super important is showing up. Um, yeah. It, which sounds obvious, but, you know, whenever I've had, a, a, you know, any kind of corporate setback or I've lost my job or uh, anything really grim, w- what I've always been able to do and again this may be fear driven or just you know uh, stubbornness but I always just get back up and just go back at it again and uh, so there's never you know I've, I've never allowed myself to wallow you know um, have, have, have you kept a lot of lifeboats or lifelines like I mean you talked about how you kept these other re- you, these multi-relationships you've kept over the years is part of that keeping keeping those those bridges not unburned, so you you can go back to other people or find other places you can jump back in? Yeah, they they've always been, uh, you know, important. Not, you know, I don't do it solely for that reason, obviously. No, no. But I think it's yeah. a, it's important to have that. I mean, it it certainly helped me, you know, plenty of times. I mean, David Black, uh, you know, a couple of times when I needed him was there with a job and, and an opportunity, and and I think. Just keeping in, in touch with people who can help you. Um, and, you know, now, of course, I'm trying to do it for my kids. So all this whole network I've built, I'm trying to use for for my children so they can have introductions to people. And, and uh, you know, unfortunately, throwing a resume in on LinkedIn is not a surefired way, you know, to get hired. And uh, so and so you're t- tell me how that works. Because, so I mean, I think I think we all want to do this for our kids. But then sometimes the kids don't want as much help as we'd like to offer right yeah generally generally they don't um which is a credit to them i mean they want to do it on their own um and, sure and of course some of them will take a you know a, you know decide they want to do something completely different than in, in it's an area that you can't help them right but we're we're, we're you know i think mo- my all mine have now finally come to the conclusion that i can be helpful you know and uh it's up for them up to them whether they want to take that help but They've tried it, you know, on their own and had some success, but, you know, opening a door or two along the way, that's all you can do is open the door. You can't do the job for them. They have to then do it. But, sure. Um, so, I, I, you know, it's a delicate balance because you don't want to be pushing your own agenda at them either. No, it's interesting. I did a podcast on entitlement where I talked about, you know, I think sometimes we forget how much we have. Um, one, of, one of my good friends, Mark Matherall, said to me one time, he goes, well, you know, you know, he, he, a lot of successful people and their family and his 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 wife's then wife's family, and he said, "Well, you know, they don't give us anything." And I said, "Well, <laughs> you can walk in, you know, a business uh, plan to your father-in-law, your father, and they can introduce you to plenty of people. There's right. there's no shortage of money in the world. There's shortage of great ideas and and getting yeah. connected to to those great ideas. Yeah, and access. You know, yeah, that's what we're talking about, really. Is, right. You know, how do you, you know, I I had Jake go and meet with, uh, you know. Uh, Guy Jeremy Liu, who works at Lightspeed Ventures, last week, which is a huge uh, venture capital venture company, capital firm, and you know Jeremy's, you know, a busy guy to say the least, and you know was the original seed money behind Snapchat and a number of other successful uh, businesses, and so just being able to get 
do that introduction, nothing may come of it, but at least he's going to meet with a smart guy yep. who may or may not be able to, you know, do anything for him, but it, but at least he's meeting smart people, which is not It's, a, it's a door that, that can get opened. Right. right. That's, no, I mean, that's yeah. the best you can do at some point. I mean, I just don't want to give him money. I mean, I don't think that helps them. I mean, we paid for their education, so they're they're debt free out of college, which I think is a big gift. That's a huge. That's a huge, huge one. And um, I mean, I you know, student debt in the U.S. is in the trillions now. Right, and I think we talked about this. It's, I mean, you went to night school. I was fortunate enough to have my parents pay for my tuition. I had to pay for my books and and lodging. But the, you know, the the cost of an education is so high now, particularly undergraduate education. Um, it's kind of hard to justify. Do you, do you agree with that? It's stunning. I mean, the my nephrologist now, who's, who's great Bashma at UCLA, she and her husband are both docs, and they have something like $400,000 in student debt, and they're both working, you know, seven days a week. They're hoping at some point to pay it off and get a condominium. These are two specialists, by the way. Two doctors, two specialists with so much debt that they, they're not sure when they're going to get out of it exactly. or when they're going to be able to buy a... Like, and and condominiums are, in L.A. are expensive, but still, still, there's two working doctors in a family. Well, and they are kids. You know, they, they're right. now in their... You know, I mean, kids by my standards, but they're like in their... They're specialists, so they're in their 30s. You know, it's not like they're 22. And you know, I mean, Sure. So it uh, it's crushing so i don't know how people are coming out with two hundred thousand on a liberal arts degree and wanting to be a teacher i mean it's pretty pretty grim yeah no i mean that's um that's one of the things i've talked about with different people is the uh you know and our kids have gone to to schools that are not inexpensive um you know some overseas and i think the you know that's a gift we can give them but it's not something I think it's very hard to justify on a pure financial basis. I mean, you no. do it. You do it for the same reason. Maybe you pay for your kids to join a soccer club, um, not because you ever think they're actually going to go pro and get your money back, but because it's part of the development of your of your family. Yeah, and, and I think unfortunately or fortunately, whatever the case may be, but in, in the in the U.S. now, a college degree is almost the same as it used to be having a high school degree. Right. I mean, you know, when I was coming up, if you hadn't graduated from high school, that was a terrible thing. Now, if you haven't graduated from college, I think a lot of doors are shut in your face, even though that may not be fair. I just think that's where we are as a society. It sort of needs to be on your resume in order to get into better employment opportunities. Yeah, it really does. I think it's just a check mark that, you know. Now, I mean, unless you're going to do something like, you know, become a chef or, you know, electrician or something like that, then in which case I think you're wasting your time. Just go and get a skill. But, yeah. And do you think that, that maybe part of what we should be thinking about in the United States um, is, you know, different tracks i mean it seems like right now the only track is you go to high school you get a four-year degree and then you try and get a job which you know you're in this linkedin maze or wherever you're putting your resume yeah do you think we should be thinking more about helping people figure out if they should be going to college yeah i think so too and i think we should start some of the life skill stuff early in high school too so that they can they can have the knowledge like budget, um, like create a budget, things like that. <laughs> save money. What what is a mortgage? You know. Yeah. Um, and and instead of focusing, you know, my daughter had a terrible time with math. Well, she was, you know, finally got through university, but it was half the places she couldn't get in because she couldn't do math. Right. I mean, what's she going to need math for? Practically speaking, these days. Or, or advanced math. I mean, she's advanced math. She yeah. she could do basic. She could do algebra and some basic math, right? But yeah. it's but I think to your point, when's the last time you used your geometry or you know got beyond basic geometry like got, for painting got, a house or they've something? They've got Google for that, you know. Sure. And, but 
but I, I think in Canada, I, they have a pretty good system of community colleges. In California, our community colleges seem to be mostly designed to save money on university going in. Right. And, and after two years, getting them to a college. As opposed it's still to, pushing you into a four-year college. Still pushing into a four-year college, and whereas in in Canada, those much like it is in parts of Europe, in particularly Germany, there are places that are trying to give you a trade. Right. And the trick is, how do you kind of somewhere in the high school process determine what's going to be best? And a lot of it's geographic. If you're sitting there in in Laguna Beach and you're Laguna Beach High School, most of those kids are not planning to be a plumber. Right. They're all well. They're all almost. Not all, but a lot of them, you know, more than half are thinking about for, where they're going to go to university. Well, I would say probably 80%, you yeah. know, and at least. And so uh, some of it's accidental to geography, but I think there's still a lot of people who find themselves floundering around in college and then come out with no clue what, what they just did. What do you think about entrepreneurship? Do you recommend people um, try and do their own thing? Yeah, and, you know, if they have the capability to do it, it's not for everybody, you know, I mean, it... It's one of those things that, um, and again, I don't know how you train people for it because there's certain DNA that kicks in, you know, whether you have that real ability and drive to be able to do it and be able to deal with the setbacks and all that stuff that come up when you're starting your own business. But but I think if you have that desire and aptitude, it's sure worth giving it a try. I mean, I'd and, rather and maybe, do that. You know, I should define terms a little bit. Yeah. Um, there's... Because I, you know, you look at a lot of business deals. You look at real, I mean, people who write business plans and raise real money, versus I think sometimes when people talk about entrepreneurship these days, there's kind of there's people hustling, you right. know, going to like you know you hear Gary Vaynerchuk talk about it. He's talking about people going to, um, you know, flea markets, finding things and then reselling them on eBay, and he calls that entrepreneurship effectively. Yeah. There's people who are self-employed, um, people who. Uh, you know, find a trade or 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 um, find a little shop or a business or or buy a franchise, and then there's I think what you and I would think of as real entrepreneurship, right. which is you're writing a business plan, you're selling that plan to to people who are going to help you finance it, whether it's friends and family or whether it's you know um, investors, um, and that's a that's a totally different animal than self employment or, or just side hustles. That's right, yeah, and and so I. I think it's all entrepreneurship at some level, but you're right. I was thinking more of the, you know, you're going out to raise a couple million bucks at least and you're going to start this new thing and you're going to have to execute with investors in your back, you know, watching watching what you're doing. And that's another level of stress. But yeah. I think, you know, it's like horses for courses, right? I mean, I, I think, you know, opening a dry cleaning business in a, in a small town could probably be as stressful as, you know, raising two million bucks depending on who you are, right? Sure. So, And it's also maybe a good way to, to figure out what your aptitudes are. I mean, I think to your point, um, there's, a, there's, there's some th ideas floating around the internet that you see where it's like everyone should be an entrepreneur. And, um, you know, usually said by entrepreneurs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully successful ones. It's yeah. like everyone should play the tuba. I'm not sure. I mean, yeah. one, you'd be a pretty boring symphony. But... Um, you know, with Skyler, we just we had this where Skyler, um, my older son, he graduated with a literature degree, taught school in Spain, figured out how to get to Spain, how to get into a teaching program there, get paid, and then um, thought he'd try his hand at entrepreneurship, went and worked at a startup, um, and, you know, was selling in Spanish, which was a second language for him, and he was doing, no you know, easy thing. Yeah, yeah, I would say he had mixed results. Um, 
he he's very critical of himself. I thought he was pretty fantastic. But I think for him, he felt like the level of stress and insecurity just wasn't was wasn't what he, didn't charge him up, right? It didn't didn't right. encourage him and engage him. Exactly. It, it it it's literally not for everybody. But I think also going to work for someone else at least for two or three years. Yeah. And getting if you're lucky, someone who really knows what they're doing. Get some experience, some yeah. real experience. Ninety yeah. percent of the businesses I see that fail fail because they have no clue about basic cash flow, you know, fundamental financial management. Basic management, yeah. They have a dream, they have an idea, sometimes the product's even good, but they can't, and we're back to math, but they can't do basic math. Right. And so one deal after another that goes down, it's usually because they run out of money because they don't know how to manage the money. Right. I mean, one of the reasons you fail because they have bad ideas, but you know. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that we had to bring into excess was we had to bring in more sophisticated financial management as we, especially as we got larger, and um, you know, I think one of one of my partners had some financial trouble, and you came in to help him out and to uh, and to help us out. Right. Um, And I think I think both you and and uh, you know the CFO that we brought in um, were huge helps in helping us think about how we needed to manage our resources, how we need to plan for the future, how do we need to be more strategic in some of our ideas. I mean, that was, uh, that, was, that was very, very helpful for us. It helped us grow up a lot. And I think that's something that maybe sometimes people take for granted. It's, and it's easy when you're growing and there's lots of money um, to not have to worry about some of those things. Well, also, if you're a product person, you know, and, and your whole life has been design or product, the math, to, you know, the finances don't interest you. you right. Know? But unfortunately, um, you know, best product in the world with no financial underpinnings is just not going to have a good outcome. So it, it, it's a you know if you're if you're the creative soul's got a genius idea out there, then just at least try and have someone in your life who can work with you on the financing side. So, um, sure, I mean I think in there's a book called Rich Dad Poor Dad that a lot of our listeners um, are interested in, and it's kind of the basic idea is that there's four quadrants. You go from employed to um, well, it's basically move. It's a movement from being employed to an investor class person. You go through the self-employed entrepreneurship to you're you know you just have money working for right. you. You've kind of done that, and you're you've done that in your life. Um, I mean, you and I work together on a lot of investment opportunities now. We probably spend, I would say, the bulk of our time focused there. Yeah. Um, we you know we work closely with a number of these different firms you have more experience there than I do if you were going to help somebody think through these kind of these quadrants of going from employed to and I don't know if it's necessarily has to be employed self-employed entrepreneur to investor but if you wanted to go from employee to investor class where your money's working for you and you know you can have more free time untethered what would be the what would be some of the ideas or some of the suggestions you'd have for getting there well, first thing, and I've said this to my kids forever, is uh, don't sell your time by the hour. Um, and unless you're going to be a super high-end lawyer, in which case you're getting $1,000 an hour, selling your time by the hour never has a good outcome. Um, and so you want to do things... Even, even if it's $1,000 an hour, the problem is it's tied to your hour. Right. And you've, you've only, only got, got 24 so in a day. Yeah, yeah. And you're going to have to pay an assistant, and you're going to have to, you know, I mean, it's yeah. going to be all this stuff. So don't sell your time by the hour. And, and then... You know, try and uh, find 
you know, uh, again, I come back to geography, put yourself in a place where you can be successful, you know? So, so associate with people who are going to, are going in the direction you want to go. Right. And, and can help you and encourage you. And, and, and so, so to me, it's don't sell your time by the hour, put yourself in a good place ge- geographically. And then also admit and know what you don't know. I mean, you and I met with a, a woman at a beverage company and, you know, about four years ago, I guess. And yeah, she has a she has a boutique beverage brand that was very interesting. Yeah. But... But the problem was that <laughs> she was so devoted to the purity of her initial concept that she couldn't understand there was no way to scale it. And so what I was... And, you and, and she was I'm meeting us as investors. Right. And, and what you and I said to her is, look, is this a hobby or a business? Right. Because if it's a hobby, you're killing it. Yeah. But if it's a business this is going nowhere. So four years later, it's still a hobby. It's still a hobby. And, and I think we told her at the time, we said, look, either you need to change your process so you can scale. And we had right. some ideas there. Or if your whole program is it has to be this purest you know, process, then maybe what you want to do is, is, is franchise the hobby. Right. Um, you know, Because there might be a lot of other people who want a similar hobby to yours and want to make this product in their own homes, and that would be another way to do it. But she unfortunately chose neither option, and she's still, <laughs> right. she's still a hobbyist. Door number three, uh, hobbying, hobby hobbying only. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but I, I think part, part of all this, too, is finding an area that you have some expertise in, or, or at least someone you know has a lot of expertise in it. I mean, I don't invest in biotech, for example, because I know nothing about it. Right. And, and, and there's no way for me to get smart enough in biotech to, you know, I mean. Even so, so it's part of underlying that comment that not losing your investment is a big part of, of being a, a good investor? Keeping the capital is always good. I think that's <laughs> but, what Warren Buffett said there, right? That's right. Well, and, and Warren Buffett also said that, you know, he didn't invest in tech until about five years ago because he said, look, I don't understand it. Even though he was really good friends with Bill Gates. Yeah, that kind of, I think, finally changed him. Yeah, it got him into philanthropy and eventually into some tech. And yeah. high-end bridge, as it turns out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but, yeah, I, I just think um, those are some of the thoughts that, you know, try and go where there's leverage. Because, you know, you and I can make more money on a good one-hour phone call, you know, if, if, right. if it works out. You know, it's never quite that simple. But uh, then some people can work in their entire year. Right. You know, so to me, it's always, where's their leverage? I mean, it's, you know, there's maybe a simplistic bad example but real estate in a way is is that way that um it's just too crowded and there's too many people in it but you can eventually if you're successful in it do sell two or three buildings a year and make a great deal of money so there's there's tremendous leverage in that business same right. as being a stockbroker you know there's there's just some industries where but you really have to know them you I have mean, to know yeah i mean because you can so get caught in real estate and you get caught yeah. in the markets too yeah yeah but 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 the end point though is where is where can you take an hour of your time and get as much leverage for that hour as you possibly can? Yeah, and that's why I also think like things that are platforms like Shopify, where you know you're you're making money when you're asleep. Right, it's an old saying, but it, it's literally true. I mean, you got something chugging away twenty four seven with or without you, and you aren't doing anything, you know, other than. You know, run that when you're so. Awake, it's, so. Is part of this? I mean, part of this you have to have some capital, right? Well, yeah. Goal number one is is putting yourself in a position where you have some money. Where you can save some money. So, so not blowing it on 
expensive cars and fancy watches and and right. uh, I mean you've become very successful financially. Um, you're wearing a Shinola watch right now, right. which which is a beautiful watch made in Detroit, but it's cost hundreds of dollars and right. and not thousands of dollars. Um, you're in a t-shirt and shorts. We are in Sardinia. Right. Um, but we were shopping this week. We were in Paris, or last week we were in Paris, and we were shopping at Uniglo. Right. We um, because they have great clothes, and they're really well-styled and not expensive. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, if you can afford to go to Prada and, and, you know... But again, you know, one of the most successful guys I know... Um, I won't mention his name, but... He's, he's a big... He's, he has a big... Uh, very successful private large PE firm. firm right yeah, yeah. And, and he shows with, up with no limited partners it's his own money it's his own money you know he put a couple hundred million of his own money in um, but he shows up with a Casio watch and a you know a pair of uh, hiking boots and, and you know a t-shirt and you know cargo pants that's it yeah. and, a, and, a, and a jet and a jet <laughs> <laughs> so his, his pants aren't creased from flying commercial <laughs> But but that's a you know maybe an extreme example, um, but 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 Warren Buffett is like that same too. Same thing, right? I mean, he lived the same house for forty years. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he he in uh, Omaha. He allowed his wife to buy, I think, a couple houses in Emerald Bay and Laguna Beach eventually, right. but you know he still lives in the same house in Omaha that he's owned for for maybe sixty 40 years, years, forty years, something like that. More, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's a modest by billionaire standards houses. Right. I mean, nice by Omaha standards. You could buy a house across the street for $1.2 million, which I think is pretty high end in Omaha, Omaha. But, but, you know, but his is, I think, valued in the 600000 or $700,000 oh, yeah. range. By a garage in Laguna Beach, you know. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, yeah, so I, I think all those kinds of elements, they've all been said before, I guess, in different ways. But I think ultimately, if you can put yourself in a position to have some investable capital and don't lose it, uh, then you're at least on your way. And also try and put yourself in a position of getting equity where you work. Yeah. Because I've had a couple of, of fortunate uh, exits, uh, including with excess, where yep. where the equity ended up turning out to be really where the payoff was. Sure. Much more valuable than the wages. Well, I had a boss well, that said to me once, David, it's about, it's about wealth, not wages. Right. And this was in the tech sector, um, which was really helpful to me. But, but I think this is, you know, so one is... Spend spend less than you make. Right. Save money. We had a friend, mutual friend, who had come to me and wanted to invest with us. And you know, he's been he makes plenty of money, but he hadn't been able to save very much. And so, you know, one of the things that I think we had suggested to him was first get a hundred thousand dollars in the bank. Right. And and by in the bank, you could put in CDs, you could put in index fund, but put in something where it's it's not going to go away. Right. Um, you're not going to lose it. Don't put in things that are risky. And then I think we, uh, we had suggested that when he got to about a million dollars in savings, that's when he could start looking at things that were riskier for, with a small percentage of that investment. Right. Some of the things that we, you know, m- monkey around in, in private equity and, and other places. Well, and, you know, alternative investment classes, I mean, you know, we heard uh, from uh, Chuck at TSG about, you know. T- TSG is a large private equity firm, one of the biggest, and Chuck Esserman founded that, who's He's a brilliant investor who's, I think, you know, off the record is they, they generate over 40% annual returns and have for a long time. Yeah, it, it's incredibly successful. And, and you know, they've made great billions and billions, of, billions of dollars. Of dollars yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but he even he said, look, you know, unless you're... And he was talking to professional athletes, right? right. This was a room full of mostly professional athletes at our RX3 conference. Exactly. And, and he was saying, look, uh, you guys just stay away from these alternative investments. You're, nothing but heartache is going to come. And these, some of these athletes, you know, including our friend, I mean, these guys are worth... Hundreds of millions of dollars. Millions of dollars, you know. Yeah. And even then he's saying, look... Index know, funds. Right. Put yeah. it in safe places. Don't lose it. For You know, you just said it's a rare person who can get into these alternative investments and have it worked out. Now, listen, if, if you're that wealthy and you, you know, put 5% in and, and are con quite content with the fact that it may never come back, fine. You know, well, yeah. that can't be the basic building block of your investment thesis. And I think, I mean, one, one of our mutual friends, you know, Aaron Rodgers helped start RX3 with Byron Roth and Nate Robbie. And, you know, we're both you know, on the board of now and investors with. But I think to Aaron's credit, I mean, he had brought Chuck in with Byron and, yeah. and Nate. Um, we all co-invest with Chuck. Um, one of the things that I think Aaron had pointed out in that conversation was that, you know, he had made some early in his career and he started making some money. He tried to make do his own investing and that didn't work out very well. Right. And, you know, he, you know, he was he was trying to share that information with other younger athletes because everybody thinks, hey, now I've got some money. Now I can be a smart investor. And it's easy to hear a pitch and be an optimist and see how it could work. It's hard to understand how it could fail. I mean, Magic Johnson, you know, Kobe, there's been a few of them who've been very successful at doing this, but it's a short list. Yeah, and, Kareem, and there's people like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar who, who were, you know, really, really had some big failures. Really, you know, you know stunning. Stunning failures. And yeah. So, uh, the other thing Aaron said at that, at that conference what, that was interesting is that, um, sort of dovetailing what we were talking about earlier, every time he goes to a city to play, yeah, he would then try and get a meeting with the t whatever the top industry guy in that meeting was. He, he goes out of his was. way to find the most successful people or, or a, per a person of interest for him, somebody right. that has some expertise he's thinking about or looking for, and he'll try and get a meeting with that person. And, you know, and fortunately, he's Aaron Rodgers, so people... <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good odds. <laughs> people always say yes, you know, but, but, but he, he said, you know, he's had some fantastic lunches and dinners with guys that, you know, m most of us probably wouldn't have that access to, but it's been really a growth thing for him. You're right. You know, and, I, you know. and I think, was it Desmond Howard? Somebody in the room, too, said, you know, one of the things... No, it wasn't Desmond Howard, because he's a pretty high... I mean, this was a, was a lower-level athlete than Desmond. But somebody said, you know, one of the things that he's always done... I forget who the athlete was. He said every, every team he's played for, he's gone out of his way to meet with the owner right. and to ask a lot of questions... And then after the meeting, he will handwrite a letter thanking the owner for making the time. And he said, part of the reason I do it is I want to learn from this owner. You have the opportunity, you have access. If you ask for it, you can probably get this meeting. He said, but secondarily, I handwrite the letter because, you know, in the future when I'm not playing, if I ever want to get back and have a meeting again, they'll probably remember me because there's very few people that handwrite thank you letters when they have those types of meetings. That's right. And that's just smart. Just thinking ahead is what we are talking about earlier, which is... You know, build these relationships and build them for the long haul. Build build them for multi-year, you know, uh, success because that's the only way you can really kind of build a network that's going to be meaningful. Yeah, and I think to your point, you're not just having the meeting because you're trying to get something. You're not going in with an ask, other than hey, I'd like to Time. I'd like to glean yeah. some of your wisdom if you don't mind. Yeah, and I think most people appreciate that. I think they do. I mean, it, it, I think almost everyone likes to be able to pass on something that they think they've learned that would be helpful to someone else. I mean, this is a rare person who 
who's curmudgeonly about that and doesn't want to do it. Um, and, you know, obviously some people are going to be harder to get to if you're not Aaron Rodgers, but, um, but almost everyone, uh, if, if you're persistent and polite, um, will, will eventually make some time for you. No, I think that's, that's sage advice. Yeah. And uh, I, I think most people don't ask because they think the person won't meet with them. Or they don't even think about it. Yeah. I, I can't, you know, exactly. Like, most people aren't thinking about it. And then if they do, they're like, oh, that person would never meet with me. Think of the amount of people we've met who just have never done any kind of homework whatsoever, even, even about the business they're trying to start. You're just going, wow, I mean, you might want to Google that. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just super, super basic stuff. Because we take a lot of meetings. and Tons of people. And we don't see a lot of, I mean, the number of great ideas are pretty, pretty small. They're, they're small and, and occasionally, I mean, you know, listen, we both were invested in one that was a great idea that had terrible management. And, right. And that... Um, we almost lost our investment. And we're, right. Fortunately, I think we're getting it back out. Yeah. But it was, it was the people who were running it were just not capable. No. And, and, and you see that a lot, too, where the idea is great and the people are just not capable of actually doing it and, or, in fact, are totally capable of ruining it. So... If you had to put your money on a great idea or great people, where would you where would you weight it? Great people. I mean, we're, we're both invested with a guy, um, uh, Gary. I don't think he'd mind us mentioning his name, Gary Seahoff, and he's got a company, and he's just so good. His company is Sophistaplate. Sophistaplate, yeah. Beautiful and, paper plates and paper straws uh, that that don't fall apart when you use them. Right, and and he's a very experienced guy in 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 that area, um, but he's a former CPA. You know, he's had three successful out, uh, you know, three exits. successful exits from, from private equity backed businesses. He just knows what he's doing. And so he's also an immigrant, right? He's an immigrant from South Africa, yeah. worked for Deloitte, and then ended up starting some businesses. He'd be another, I'll interview Gary at some point. But yeah. he's, uh, I, I think to your point, he's had, he's got the hustle, he's got the expertise, and he's done this a few times. He knows how to count. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is a good thing. And right now he's being affected by these tariffs and and uh, all these other challenges that every any new business goes through. Uh, maybe the tariffs weren't so necessary, uh, <laughs> but uh, but I'm, co- I'm have tariffs that, ever worked? Uh, not not to my knowledge. They they did work in terms of getting us into a recession or depression. Yeah, the history of economics. Tariffs yeah. are a bad idea. You can look it up. <laughs> we got pretty much <laughs> Google that too. Um, but uh, anyway, I just. Confidence over you that Gary will eventually figure it out one way or another. Right. You know he'll he'll do whatever he has to do to make this work. And so a guy like that, even if his business changes or something like twenty five percent tariff suddenly hits him, most people would just fold up and not know what to do. Right. He'll, he'll figure it out. And well, he's already got a plan which we can't talk about. But but you know he he's right. already. He's already there. He's already on the next. He's on the next chess he, he move. Know, he knows what's going to happen. It's kind of like sailing, right? I mean, part of the reason you want experienced sailors with you isn't just because they're good. It's because when things go horribly wrong, they've got enough experience to figure out solutions, right? And not gonna, freak out. They aren't going to panic, and 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 they've, you know, I mean, it just helps to have people who've been there before. Period. Right. In, in almost any endeavor, and uh, but particularly when it's life or death, when you're sailing, or or in, in business when it's life or death. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I, I think. Just, you know, at least having done that time, I mean, it's back to the 10,000 hours and all that. I mean, at the end of the day, none of it's free. None of it's by accident. It's all someone taking the time, putting the hours in, making the mistakes, failing, getting up, doing it again until they finally have enough accumulated knowledge to know, hey, this is what works. Right. 
And, you know, listen, luck kits in at some point. I mean, but... Uh, do you think you also generate your own luck? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I think you're, you're probably, you know, 90%, uh, you know, uh, perspiration and 10% inspiration and luck, you know. Yeah, yeah. At, at the end of the day, you know, it's an old saying, but I, I think, uh, you know, working through this stuff is, at the end of the day, putting the hours in. There's no substitute for it as far as I know. You know. Rich DeVos was one of the you know founders of Amway. He he uh, famously used to work multiple jobs. He and his dad worked for two of my great uncles part time, you know, on weekends and stuff. And one of the things that he said was, uh, you know, if if you need more money, just get another job. Right. I mean, yeah, right, right, right. Let me simple this up for you. <laughs> <laughs> because most people think you know, and, and Gary Vaynerchuk talks about this a lot too. I mean, people have one job; they work eight to ten hours a day, and they think that's all they can do. And I think anyone who's been ultimately successful that didn't inherit it, you had to just do a lot more. Whether you had to, the opportunity to work harder or longer in the place you're working, or if you could do something else on the side in order to you know, to add something extra on top of what you're currently doing. Yeah, it's a classic immigrant story, and, and uh, we're often they're coming over here working two, three jobs, and, uh, you know, my wife was a first-generation immigrant from Italy. I mean, her father literally was the old story, literally came over with, like, $25 in his pocket. Right. Ended up owning a five-acre farm and was successful uh, working as a, you know, running a welding crew in a big shipyard. I mean... But, you know, the hours that guy had to put in. Sure. Doing menial jobs and stuff for years and years. I mean, well, so Sarah's grandparents, too. I mean, they, they came from thing. the Netherlands. And, and uh, you know, I think her grandfather was a meat cutter. And he had three meat cutting jobs. He right. worked, And he, he worked really hard to put his kids through university. And, you know, now they're doctors and lawyers and different things. For some reason, we don't think immigrants are valuable in this country anymore. But <laughs> Unclear why. It's <laughs> exactly. the foundation of America. We're all immigrants. We are all immigrants. Yeah. And so... Oh, we don't have to get into that. But I, <laughs> <laughs> well, here's a question. This yeah. is one that I kind of like to wrap up on. It might be an interesting one for you because I think um, you know I've heard, we've had a wide variety of answers here. But it kind of gets to um, what comes next. You know, um, you, you've stared down the barrel of the gun recently. What do you think happens after? Uh, what's the universe all about? What do you think? Uh, what do you think? What do you think happens after after we pass from this life? Is there God? Is there uh, benevolent power in the universe do we come back do we go away any ideas uh you know i hope i come back and <laughs> and as a supermodel right? <laughs> or a rock star I, yeah either, either one. one yeah you're good with <laughs> either I'm happy with either of those outcomes you know um i'm not a particularly uh you know lent to sort of beliefs after death you know I, I there's not enough data for me you know I it's not that I'm purely data driven but uh, I I respect people's views on that but for me uh, since no one's come back to tell us you know you're really kind of having to go with you what your gut is and and so for me it uh, you know I'm not sure what happens afterwards I don't think anyone really does and I think if it if you find comfort from from subscribing to some of the solutions that are out there, like reincarnation or yeah. know, whichever one you like, and there, as you know, there's plenty of flavors. Then I think take comfort from it, and um, and and I would never decry it. But for me, uh, unfortunately, I, I don't have that 
level of comfort of belief. I mean, I, I wish I did. I mean, I wish I could say, phew, I know what's going to happen. Gonna be, <laughs> you know, that supermodel thing is a lock. You, know? <laughs> but, uh, you might but, you might have passed on the kidney. <laughs> <laughs> that might hold me back now. So I, I'm pretty sure Iris might come back as a supermodel. Yeah, well, she definitely, she's got some good karma out of that <laughs> That's kidney. That's right. She's got some serious karma built up there, but... Yeah, so I don't have a great answer for you on that. I, I think it... Uh... Well, the last night we were talking at dinner, we were yeah. at, the, um, at the... By the way, we were at the fabulous restaurant called uh, Pesca, Pescatore, I think yeah. it was called, in, in uh, Port of Cervo. Anytime you see uh, Cyrillic on a menu, they're, they're trying to write it in Russian, uh, the prices are going to be a little higher than you might like. <laughs> it's great food, yeah. a little well, spendy. Well, when, when you see the, uh, the Caesar salad appetizer is 40 euros. <laughs> <laughs> Am I in Switzerland? That's right. But we were having a great dinner last night. It was a beautiful place. Yeah. We had a nice right. dinner. Yeah. Um, one of the things we talked about last night was this, you know, there's a lot of theologians now, particularly in the Christian faith, who are coming, kind of lining up with some, you know, kind of some ideas that, that fall out of uh, the Zen Buddhist ideas, too, that right now, this place right. right here is kind of all, you know, what we have yeah. and what we need to focus on. Um, and that doing doing the right things right here, right now are kind of probably the most important thing, regardless of what you think is going to happen next. I think that's right. I mean, you know... That certainly is where I'm trying to get to, as we talked about earlier. I mean, you know, when you start studying, you know, the advantages of actually just being in the moment, uh, which I find extraordinarily hard to do, but but I'm getting a little better at it. And my daughter's teaching Kundalini yoga, Kate. And uh, Kate is teaching Kundalini, which is that's a breathing yoga. Is that right? Yeah, breathing and meditation yoga. Very difficult. I mean, she had to study, get up at every morning, every morning for a year at four thirty to practice. Amazing. So you need that kind of discipline, but but I, it's really centered her, and I, and I think those kinds of activities, whether it's meditation, yoga, whatever it is, it helps you. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I can't do anything about the past. I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I can kind of function right now and and i'm getting better at doing that it's very hard though i'm not, I'm not saying it's easy. takes a lot of practice it takes a lot of doesn't practice. happen on its own apparently not <laughs> <laughs> well glenn thank you for making time on our trip uh to uh, to share your experiences and ideas i think it's very helpful i think uh you know as people are trying to break through barriers in their own life this is the kind of thing at least in my mind it's helped me we've had a lot of very uh exciting conversations yep. over the years trying to figure things out um, Lots more to come, I hope. A lot, lot, lot more to come. Yeah. Uh, so this is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. Uh, it is not a spectator sport. We'd love to get your comments, questions, and ideas. And if you want to reach out to Glenn, Glenn, how do people reach you? Do you mind people reaching out to you? No, no, I don't. I mean, I don't know. How would they? I mean, Is it uh, you put on an email or a, yeah, a so Facebook? GlennRogers at me.com or... Glenn and it's Rogers with no D. No D, unfortunately. Glenn tells his the wrong way. Glenn Rogers, Glenn <laughs> Rogers, all one word at at, at me.com. Yeah. And you're also Glenn Allen on uh, Instagram, on right? Instagram. G L E N N A L L I N. Yes. Yeah. It's a family spelling. So. Yeah. Yeah. Looking at your family and, uh, couldn't spell. You, huh? you can see me, you know, sort of duplicating Dave's <laughs> photos on our, <laughs> on our trip. As we're traveling so. around. Anyway, thanks for this, Dave. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, so so please reach out to Glenn if you have any questions or, or uh, uh, you know comments, and uh, please reach out to me too if you'd like. This is not a spectator sport. Whatever you do this week, please be kick aspirational.